Hi, Jenny. Hey, Felice. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you. And um, hi to everyone who's listening. Uh, and welcome to another episode of <clears throat> Letters Off Paper. I'm your host, Jennifer Jazz. And tonight, I'm who I've known for a long while. I first met her when I was just 18. It was 1980. And a whole other world, a whole other reality. And um, even though she's most associated with her New York-based band, Faith, you know, with whom she plays bass and, you know, she's the lead singer. Um, when I met her, she was, there was significant buzz um, around Felice about her writing. So tonight, I'm going to be picking her brain about that period of her life when she was an up-and-coming writer with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of curiosity about her work. Again, thank you, Felice, for joining me tonight. Um, let's see. My first question for you would be, I would like to know um, how you imagined, how you envisioned your life before you arrived in New York from Detroit. Well, when I... Uh, left Detroit. I was actually taking pictures a lot. That's what I love to do. Uh, I had a Canon camera and I wanted to be a photographer, you know? So, because um, my, my mother had a friend who took uh, photographs for the Detroit Free Press and he, I don't remember his name, but I spoke with him a lot and he looked at some of my pictures and I came to New York and I was taking uh, pictures, street scenes, and also some music pictures, because I also did that in Detroit, took pictures for, you know, and got they got published in Circus Magazine and Rock Scene and different things like that. So hmm. I, I came and I wanted, I was taking pictures and I worked, I went to Barnard and I uh, took pictures for the Barnard Bulletin and I, in the club, and I wrote some articles for the Barnard Bulletin. And, uh, you know, I I always thought, you know, I was going to be 45 in 2000. When I was a kid, I used to look towards the year 2000 and say, boy, I wonder what my life was going to be like, you know, in that year, you know. Um, so I envisioned coming to New York and, uh, take pictures. I didn't know anything about art or the art world or anything. My mother wanted me to be an on-air personality or, you know, a television uh, talking head. That was what she thought would be great. And I thought I'd go into journalism or something. So that's what I thought when I came here. Yeah. Okay. So you imagine that you would be a journalist in New yes. York. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, photojournalism also because I did so much enjoy taking pictures you know and can you tell me something about both your informal and formal creative development process at Barnard well at Barnard I you know we started uh, actually in, in high school I took a class called film history and that was in a class in film history and that was, um, you know, the first time I began thinking about movies as, 
more than just entertainment, but looking at movies critically. And I met Bud Clement at uh, Columbia. He was my friend and he said, let's go see the birds. And of course I had seen the birds many times on TV in Detroit, but Buddy was a big uh, film buff and he kind of showed me how to look at films in a different way. Look, look at certain themes and, and I don't know, I just began to look at films in a different way. And I also took a class in the history of photography at Barnard and I began to see photographs in a different way. I, you know, they were showing, besides all the different uh, realist photographs, they were showing a lot of images by Man Ray and also, you know, how the, the, the way to convey emotion artistically in photographs with people like Alf, Alf, Alfred Stieglitz and uh, different people like that. So my mind opened a little bit that way. Uh, then also through reading uh, I and writing, I met Daryl Pinckney, uh, at, because we read um, in English, we read a, a book by, oh boy, Sylvia Plath. And then Daryl Pinkney and Howard Bruckner had a Sylvia Plath book, birthday party, which I attended. And so, and they were just great. But they were also like dishing and talking about different, uh, the, the, the writers on a personal level, which I had never thought of before you know it was more like cocktail parties and talking about writers in that way in a less formal hmm. way which was really fascinating and interesting and then Daryl introduced me to Elizabeth Hardwick and I took uh I took a class also with Catherine Stimson called The City and Literature and that was when I first read the autobiography of Malcolm X in that class. And uh, I, I saw, I don't know, this, the literature really affected me in a way, as opposed to, you know, the books we were reading in high school, Mayor of Casterbridge and things like that, which I, I liked very much too, but the sort of more modern in your face books, which we didn't get in high school at that time you know, it was very intriguing. We read Naked Lunch. You know, I couldn't make heads or tails of it, but uh, we read it. And uh, then Daryl introduced me. He suggested I take a class with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hardwick, a creative writing class, which I did. And so, you know, uh, and uh, she was lovely and she gave me uh, an assignment to to write something, a descriptive uh, story, three pages, using only sound to describe as a describe as a descriptive element, and I found that fascinating. And I guess she liked what I did because then she really began to encourage me. You know, I had taken another creative writing class at Barnard with this other woman. I don't remember her name, but it was just I I didn't. We didn't have a communication at all. It was just the same old paragraph, paragraph storyline, but it was very like ponderous and I, I didn't enjoy it. But Elizabeth Hardwick was taking chances stylistically saying, you know, you could take, because I've always been hung up 
with writing and like, and he came to the door and he put in his key and he opened the door and he walked in and there she was sitting there smiling. He laughed, you know, the sort of linear thing. I, I, I have a hard time with that. But with Elizabeth Hardwick, I, I learned more that you, it doesn't have to be that, you know, sort of plotting one, two, three, four, he did this, then he did that, then that happened. You can take more chances. And that was exciting to me. So that was developing. And then Patti Smith came and did a poetry reading at my school at Barnard. And so she invited us all to come downtown to see her band play, which we did. And I went to Reno Sweeney's. Then I went to CBGB's and I started going to CBGB's all the time. And then it came that I could play music. And so then that was another door that opened. Yeah. So. Hmm. Um, can you tell me something about the difference between Detroit and New York at that phase, because you made this transition from Detroit to New York. Like how great a transition or little of a transition was that? Well, I mean, it's from going somewhere where you know everything and you know everyone and you have your family and people who love you. And, um, you know, I, I, I recently looked went to my sister's and she had a lot of old pictures and we were looking looking at the old pictures and uh, I, you know, just with my cousins and my grandparents, my uncles, and it just seemed like a perfect life. I mean, everybody was smiling and all my cousins were smiling. We all had afros and cousins who I don't see at all now, but we were obviously very close then and I didn't even realize it, you know, and so I had my family and my friends and I I knew Detroit and I knew, but New York, you come to New York, it's very, very different, very different. Um, I didn't know anybody. So of course it's different. And I, I'll always remember, I tell this story a lot, you know, Detroit, I came to New York and we had, a, you know, a black students weekend and I had a, my mentor was this uh, uh, upperclassman named Nisi. And we went to a bodega or little deli on the corner, right around the corner from Barnard. And she bought a quart of Tropicana orange juice. Then she stepped outside on the street, opened the orange juice and tilted the whole container and was drinking a quart of orange juice right on the street like that, which would never, you would never do that in Detroit. I don't know why it was just, I just remember my mouth dropped. I was like, and she was just, standing there like daring anybody to say anything to her because Detroit was just, first of all, we didn't have Tropicana orange juice. If you, we no? drank Kool-Aid. No. Oh, wow. And if, if you drank orange, you know, we drank Kool-Aid or soda pop. We didn't drink, you know, or like lemonade that my grandmother had in handmade and you were only allowed to get half a glass, you know, because she rolled out all the lemons by hand. So that's what we drank. We, and to like drink on the street like that was, you know, you drank in your house and then you went out. You didn't like stand on the street and drink a big thing like that. We were like, wow. Well, and New York was funny. You know, everybody okay. had those little cups of coffee. I remember noticing because in Detroit, you didn't do that. Get takeout coffee. You had your coffee at home and then you went out. In New York, everybody's eating breakfast out, bacon, egg, egg and cheese. I mean, now they do that in Detroit, but at that time, 
people weren't really doing that. So I remember thinking, wow, you know, okay, it's a pretty so different place. Wasn't the fact that you had like heard New York was very different that what made you decide to, to head to New York? Or were you unaware that New York was different before you arrived there? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, we. I wanted to come to New York because of the New York Dolls. You know, I got their record in Detroit and I just, and also there was a magazine called Rock Scene at the time, which just kept talking about Max's Kansas City and how cool it was. And I was really into music in Detroit. And so that's all we used to do is, is read Rock Scene. And, and then when the New York Dolls record came out, I was like, you know, I had gotten a couple of offers to come to college, go to college. And then I kind of randomly got a catalog from Barnard, you know, and I got accepted. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to, you know, I'd like to go there, you know, just to see it. I thought, oh, I'll go right to Max's and hang out and <laughs> and uh, all this stuff. But I didn't realize, I knew it was different, but I didn't, you know, we had visited New York as a tourist, as a teenager. But I, I mean, I didn't realize how day to day, little things different it, it was, you know, then, you know, then, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be different. I thought it was going to be this great, big, fun place. And, you know, you'd just be going everywhere. But really, when I first got here, I was very lonely because the life I led in, in New York, you know, in Detroit, I didn't have my people to run to concerts went with. So I went to a lot of concerts alone. I went to New Passaic, New Jersey and all these places on the bus and to see bands that I liked in Detroit. They're playing in New York and stuff. Go to the okay. music. Yeah. All right. So when I met you in yeah. 1980, yep. you were a writer. Yep. And I'm listening to this backstory. Um, <laughs> I'm listening to this backstory and trying to figure out how to connect these dots now. <laughs> it's no, it's interesting. It's interesting and it's complex. And it sounds like you had many different options because the city had so much going on. And uh -huh. um, how did you end up, you know, at that typewriter that I will always identify you with? Well, because I met Elizabeth Hardwick and she really encouraged me. And Daryl also, Daryl Pinkney. And Luke also, you know, Luke Sand, they 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 really encouraged me. They it was cool to be a writer, you know. Uh, I wasn't thinking at all about music because I'd grown up with people in high school who were musicians and in the music program and all. And I I wasn't doing that, but writing, you know, I I I loved the words and Daryl and Miss Elizabeth were saying I was good at it. And so I, I got, you know, you had to have a typewriter to do papers in college. So I uh, had a typewriter and then I started to write, write uh, stories on it, you know, and it was and fun. It was fun. Were you career driven or just experimenting at that point? Totally just experimenting. I, I, I didn't even know, think of what a career you know, as, as, as a writer would look like. And I, I strangely enough, got a book deal so easily, you know, when you think now about how difficult that can be, but it came very easily, you know, through Elizabeth Hardwick and Alice Mayhew and uh, uh, 
people like that. And so, um, and Daryl. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed writing. But then when I got the, the book deal and it became that I had to uh, kind of the fun went out of it because it wasn't sort of free thing that I was doing. I had to tell a story and I, I uh, you know, I, it took me so many years to realize that what I had to say was not necessarily linear. You know, it wasn't necessarily, oh, this girl, you know, goes through, this character goes through these changes and comes out the end. And that's what the book is about. You know, I, and since then I've read many people whose work is more like just almost like the photographs I loved, you know, you're painting a picture, you're casting a shadow, you're, you're illuminating an environment. That's really what I, I, I love doing, you know, and, uh, but at that time I didn't realize that that was possible. You know, Luke would show me people, a writing of people by like Kathy Acker and people like that. And I just, you know, I guess I come from a pretty middle-class background. You know, I didn't have the adventurousness in me to think that what she was doing was possible, that I could do something similar. You know, now I do, but at that time, you know, I was a good girl in college trying to get good grades. So, you know, I wasn't ready to strike out stylistically. So, hmm. yeah. What kind of writing process do you recall having if you had a writing process at all? Well, you know, it, 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 you know, writing paper, writing short stories or short three, three pages or five pages for Elizabeth Hardwick's class was fun. And then I published some short pieces in bomb magazines, just telling stories of people I grew up with and things like that. Just so I, I would have something I wanted to say and then just write it down. Uh, a romantic, you know, thing. I mean, I don't want to tell all my secrets. I love my incense and my candles and, you know, the vibe and everything like that. And, uh, so, so, and, and just the poetry of the words coming together freely, you know, with, with no destination in mind and then seeing where you end up and then suddenly, okay, it's time to stop, you know, and, you know, you reach the end, you don't even know. And when you, at the beginning, you didn't even know that's the end you were trying to reach. But when it mm. became, when I was writing for this, the novel and it became having to, pages do and stuff like that uh then my process kind of went out the window i mean i was typing the pages you know but my my spirit was not there you know hmm. the 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 love had kind of gone out of it you know yeah. on the subject of spirit mm -hmm. and creativity mm -hmm. a lot of people during that time were using heroin mm -hmm. a lot of people we're kind of navigating creative terrain mm -hmm. by getting high, by getting stoned, mm -hmm. by being drunk. I remember getting drunk to write when I was first starting because I just couldn't relax enough yeah. to confront. The 
Um, what kind of issues did you have with liquor, with beer, with weed, with anything? Uh, I used to be, I wrote this thing on Edgar Allan Poe for Elizabeth Harwick. And I, I was, you know, I'd had a couple cocktails. I mean, come on, cocktails. What was I drinking then? Lambrusco or something like tacky wine. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> okay. Oh, then I was like, <laughs> that I would like smoke a joint sometimes, you know, that, you know, that, that would sometimes help out too, you know, until then I get sleepy. And, and so that would be. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. What a saga. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here's my next question on, on since you're taking me in that uh -oh. direction. Was it difficult? Was it difficult to be disciplined? Yeah. It was difficult to be disciplined. Yeah. But I mean, when, I mean, there were, there were so many clubs, there were so many things to do at that time. How did you did you feel resentful about the fact that you had a book deal at some point? Well, no, when the when the book when I was out, I mean, it was the clubs and everything were great because you go out. I, one of my favorite things I've, I've written was uh, something about going out at night and working in nightclubs and and walking across St. Mark's Place at three o'clock in the morning on my way to after hours. I mean, that 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 kind of fueled my work and I, my work was fun to me. And so I, I couldn't wait to get to the page actually, you know? And uh, so, but then to be disciplined to write a story. I mean, I'm, I'm when I had a novel, I, I said, oh, I, they gave me a little, some money. I said, oh, I'm going to finish writing my novel in Paris, <laughs> which was like, okay. But wow, you know, that was kind of a, a mistake, a misstep, because, uh, you know, I I just wasn't ready for that. I got to Paris and I, I kind of lost my train of thought for sure. And they, my mm -hmm. editor got changed also. And so I didn't have any communication with the new person at all. And so, you know, I mean, I'm disciplined. I mean, I, I'll work, you know, I'm, I'm from Michigan. Work ethic thing. So, you know, I will get up and work and, and do what I have to do, you know, stuff like that. So I would write, but um, sometimes when you're disciplined, you got, I mean, you meet, you know, Faulkner or whoever, and, or they say, oh, yes, you get up at nine o'clock in the morning and you have your coffee and you stare at the page and you do that every day. And I, 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 I marvel at that. You know, I think in some ways that's a really good way to be. That's a really good way to get work done. You know, I don't know if I, I've, I, you know, I've wrote every day pretty much because I enjoyed it. But when the joy went out of it, it became hard to be disciplined, you know? Yeah. How would you compare the culture of publishing um, that was kind of closing in on you with with a timeline and expectations that you deliver a book and then the music industry that you would soon lean towards more so? I say that my book thing was beautiful when I had the editor who Alice Mayhew was my editor and then she had the the person under her who was actually the person I would talk to when, you know, w was named Barbara, some, I don't remember her last name. 
And uh, she was lovely. And we had great, great, great communication. I felt very comfortable. When she left the company and they put me with somebody else, you know, the whole thing changed. And the whole vibe changed. The whole uh, intent of what I was going to be doing changed. You know, the lady didn't have any relationship to what I was doing at all. And I didn't have any vibe with her. And so there we are. And that happens all the time in in music also that happens, you know. So, but I think the one good thing I will say about writing is that they seem to have what they're basing their evaluation of you on is sometimes a little more substantial than what the music hmm. people base it on, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, do you think that learning to play <clears throat> an instrument, like you learn to play the bass little by little, mm -hmm. do you think that that was less restrictive than spending hours at a typewriter? <laughs> well, I mean, I just enjoy it. You know, I just enjoyed it. I, I fell in love with the bass guitar with the low notes and, and the reggae music, which also opened a whole world for me as far as uh, Black culture in New York, you know, going to little grocery stores out in Brooklyn and seeing that they had, you know, that the West Indian people were selling the same red velvet cake that my grandmother made. And there was this hot sauce on the table, which I knew about from Detroit and stuff. So, and, you know, you got to remember, this was like, the the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So it wasn't so much of a diasporic African presence, certainly in Detroit. I mean, now it's very different. But um, so coming to New York and getting into West Indian culture and reggae and everything and dub poetry, you know, seeing how different writers were exploring that as well. It just was like food for me. So I just I just went that way once once I, I just started to get into the music because I never thought I could play music. I came from a culture where, you know, you were in the music program in high school and you were learning to read and you were playing in the orchestra and things like that. And in uh, CBGB's at all, it, it opened up to, you know, you can don't have to have that much experience. You can start where you are, you know. So, yeah. Um, do you enjoy writing lyrics as opposed to some of the, you know, how you've described the writing experience being maybe confining at that time since you had so much energy and, and you, you wanted to be out on the streets, you wanted to be in the bars, the clubs, listening to music and that kind of stuff. Um, how do you feel about writing lyrics? Because I write lyrics and I think it's a lot less um, pressure to write lyrics than it is to write text that's not written to be sung I mean that's yeah exactly that's not written to be sung what do you think about lyrics versus um text like the kind of text that you were trying to um produce for Simon and Schuster yeah, was it yeah. okay uh, well I, I must say you know I really a lot of it is knowing what you want to do that's the that's that's the basics for everything. And at, with the Simon Schuster project, I wasn't sure what the story was I was trying to tell. And the same with lyrics, you know, once you have something you 
stand behind something you want to say, it's, it's easy to say it. But for me anyway, but the, the main thing is to finding out what you want to say. And a lot of that has to do with a sense of self and uh, a sense of vision and all those things. That, that, that's what's important, the most important thing for me. Once I make a decision to say, well, this is what I want to say, you know, it's pretty easy to say it, either in, in, in text or in lyrics, you know. Yeah. Now, the era that we're talking about, <clears throat> I know you mentioned the late 60s, but I'm thinking more around the time when yeah. we met, which was the late yeah. 70s, yeah. okay? And um, it was the era of the basement venue, the storefront art gallery, the black box theater experimentation had no limits. And that goes, that runs a gamut from sex to drugs to music. Um, Jean-Michel Basquiat had turned much of the city that, that we walked through into his canvas. Um, there was this raw energy, you know, um, everywhere. It was just raw and wild and anarchic. And so, do you think that all of that was like too extreme an environment to channel into like a body of work? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, I've talked to my dad recently, you know, and he, he you know, grew up in Detroit in, you know, the, the 30s and the 40s. And when you hear him talk about his youth, you know, he gets this, my dad's 97 now, he gets this gleam in his eye and he talks about being at the Paradise Alley in Detroit, Black Bottom, and going to see Muddy Waters and all the people standing in the parking lot with a hip flask and knife fights and all this kind of stuff, all trying to get. He says, oh, Muddy used to love to pay little joints, you know, where people used to be fighting. Or I see pictures of my mom at a table with a big band and all her friends there and I think everybody loves their youth. You know, when, when my dad talks about his youth, he's that age again. I see this life come into him. When we play Muddy Waters for him. I see this life come into him. And I, I think that's true for everyone, you know. And so uh, our youth, you know, I guess people made a lot of, uh, a lot of artists have made it into to a, a big deal um was it a lot to channel i mean i mean it was i don't know jen it was what it was it was fun you know it was really fun and we you know didn't have responsibilities and weren't thinking about too much and life didn't cost so much and you know we were just having fun so the people who were able to channel it into a body of work boy I really uh, admire them, you know, Jean Michel or David Wojnarowicz, or I, I don't really know, or certainly Keith Haring. I don't, I don't really know offhand so many of the writers. I know people who are writing about it now, like you know Luke, and and certainly yourself with your memoir and thing like that. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a lot going on. It was hard to stay serious, but I. I you know, I didn't think that, I wasn't even thinking that far in advance. You know, I wasn't thinking in a careerist way, like, oh, I'll finish this book and I'll get another deal and all that. I wasn't thinking beyond 
you know, the party next week. You know, what I mean that maybe that you know, what I mean hmm. I wasn't thinking about it. I mean, I talked to Billy Ficker from television, the group television, and he said, "Oh, you know, they always thought that they were going to get a record deal." And he was saying a lot of the CBGB bands they had you know, the top 10 on their minds, you know? And I, I always find that surprising because I never I never thought that way at that time, you know? I guess a lot of people did. Um, well, what um, what vocalists, you know, who, you know, ro- you know, vocalists who write their own words, not just like vocalists who mm-hmm. sing, you know, work mm-hmm. given to them by producers mm-hmm. and composers and stuff like that. What vocalists who write their own words, their own their own lyrics, do you consider great storytellers? Mm. Oh boy. Uh, uh, I mean I mean I like corny stuff, you know I me. Mean, I like Brandy, you're a fine girl. I think that's a great story. Or Ringo by Lauren Green. I think those are great stories, you know. <laughs> they oh, are. My <laughs> oh my god! Okay. I mean, then, then you know, you get into the more you know serious people, like you know, you know Bob Dylan tells good good stories, or uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That's Gordon Lightfoot. That's a great story, you know. It's beautiful. Uh, what? Uh, let's see. Uh, Bob Marley, woman holder. You know, not okay. so much him. As okay, far thank as- you. I'm waiting. I'm sitting here, waiting to hear because he was definitely someone who had a huge yeah. impact on. I me. mean, his story of you okay. know, what's the one crazy ball head and the, some of the ones where he he t- dark us out of jail. That's Linton Quasi Johnson. You know. He's another one that's just, just, you can yeah. see it, you know, you can see it, what they're talking about, you know. So I would say, um, I, even Gregory Isaacs, who people don't talk about so much, but he has this song called Wailing Rudy, where he says, you know, he talks, he in, encapsulates a sort of young, you know, youth, a young person who's like, when it, you know, he's on the street again and claims that he don't got no friends and strictly badness is all that he defends. You know, I can see this person, you know, who's been in jail, been out of jail and, you know, I, I can see it. And so, or Material Man by Gregory Isaacs, is it material things you're running after or is it praises that you're giving unto Rasta? You know, those lyrics make you think. You know, and so I, 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 I like them all very much. Even the heathen, and and uh, you know, rise up, falling fighters. It's just beautiful. You know, really resonates with me. Yeah. So. Well, I only have one more question for yeah. you. One more. Yeah. Just one more question. If if you could change one thing about your career as a musician and writer. What would it be? I would not be so depressed after I got turned down that I didn't want to do it anymore. I would be, I would develop, I would develop more 
what's it, stamina or just get up. And, you know, if one person doesn't like it, the next person might. I just keep going. I mean, I, I have that now, but maybe if I had that, you know, a number of years ago, it, it might have been different for me, you know? There you go. Stamina. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, police officer, thank you thank so you, much. Jenny. You know? Um, yeah, you've been like my ally, my comrade, my, my dear, dear friend for many decades. And I had to do this conversation with you because you're an important part, you know, of my own development yeah, as a writer. I, you know? yeah, 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 absolutely. I love your work, Jen. So I'm, I'm honored to be on your show, boy, oh boy. Yep. Very honored. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All Thank right, you for the right. Black. Peace yeah, and love. peace and love. We bye.